All right, hey, once you've met someone, you can go ahead and take a seat. First of all, just want to say, um, hey, welcome to the exchange. So glad you're here. I know today is a sacrifice for you to be here. Even though the game's in like eight hours, I know it's like a sacrifice to come because you just want to prep all day. And I don't want to ask who you're rooting for. I don't like that. I want to be like, I just don't want to divide the church. No, we're not going to do that. All I want to know is who's rooting for the commercials. That's all I want to know. No? Okay, just me. Um, Hey, uh, let's do this. Turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. If you guys need a Bible, raise your hand. We'd love to get you one so you can follow along. But Mark chapter 1, just raise your hand. Some people are passing out some Bibles. Uh, Again, just want to say welcome to the exchange. If this is your first time, my name is Josiah. And if I haven't met you yet, I would love to be able to meet you and kind of hear your story afterwards and just uh, get to know you. Um, But we are going through the gospel of Mark. And we started this a couple weeks ago. This is our third week in the gospel of Mark. And we just want to slow down. We're not in a rush. We want to slow down and go through the life and ministry of Jesus. And know this, that this book, Mark, was written for Roman skeptics. For those who necessarily didn't believe in Jesus or his life and death and resurrection. So if you are a skeptic or you have doubts, this book was written with you in mind. And so here's what I'd ask. I would ask that you just kind of patiently come every week and just hear more about the life of Jesus. And, And ask your questions and throw your doubts out there. And just examine the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Because I do believe that this is just central to, to history, but central to our lives. And I believe that if you give your time to this, that you will see that Jesus is who he said he was and what he claimed to be. And so uh, we're taking our time. We're in Mark chapter 1, verse 16. So we're not, we're not really flying by right now. We're just kind of enjoying this. So um, if this is your first time, I'd like to do a little recap, a little review, just in case maybe you have missed it so far. So the Gospel of Mark was written by... Mark, all right, uh, he was also known as John Mark. John being his Hebrew name, Mark being his Roman name. Now we studied this, and just again, there's some bullet point facts for you guys. Uh, Mark is mentioned in, in Acts chapter 12. Uh, the disciples used to meet in his mother's house. Uh, Mark actually, according to Colossians 4, is the cousin of Barnabas. He's Barnabas's cousin. Who's Barnabas? Barnabas was that guy who was always encouraging uh, Paul or other disciples and bringing them kind of to be a part of the church and to go out and pushing them in their faith. So we know that Mark is actually Barnabas's cousin. And we talked about this great split. If you read in the book of Acts, there was this, this dispute between the apostle Paul and Barnabas over John Mark, over Barnabas' cousin. And the feud was so great, it caused them to split. It caused them to go different ways, all over this guy named Mark who wrote a gospel. Now, you can read later, but uh, eventually Mark and Paul reconciled, and, and Paul even wrote, this guy, Mark, he's useful. Bring him to me. He's useful for my ministry, so we know that they're all good. Uh, but Mark was a guy that was used throughout the book of Acts. We see him in the New Testament. Uh, we also know that Peter called him the son in the faith. So Peter invested in him. Most early church fathers would say the gospel of Mark is actually written as if it's from Peter's perspective, which I love reading it in that light. It's almost like this book that we have before us from Mark is almost Peter's gospel. It's believed that this is Peter's gospel handed down to Mark, and Mark is just kind of writing it down. And so you'll see, I think, a lot of Peterisms or Peter influence in some ways, uh, but Peter called this guy son of the faith. Now, this is also kind of known as the ADD gospel, and some of you love that and some of you hate that. Uh, but Mark's the guy who jumps around. He's like all over the place. So he, he says this word immediately, you'll, you'll read it a lot, immediately 41 times. So he like, doesn't know how to change subjects, so he just goes uh, immediately, and then he changes subjects. And that's like how he transitions things, that's how he transitions thoughts. So this is less on the teachings of Jesus and more on the life and ministry of Jesus. It's more talking about the power of Jesus and saying, here's who Jesus is, here's what he's done, now you decide. 
Here's what he claimed. Here's what others said about him. You decide. So there will be teachings of Jesus, but primarily you're going to see like the power and the ministry of Jesus in this book. Now, last week, in case you did miss it, we talked about Jesus' really battle uh, in the wilderness. And if you remember, and if you didn't get a chance to, to listen to this, we looked at how there's a parallel between the first Adam and Jesus, the last Adam. How what Adam lost in the garden, Jesus recovered in the wilderness, in the anti-garden. And we looked at the similarities between the Garden of Eden and the wilderness, how they're similar but very different. And Jesus had to enter into the world not as, as Adam has found it, but as Adam left it. So Jesus comes into a wilderness and he redeems, and he's redeeming things. That's the whole point of this. Wherever he goes, Jesus brings life. And that's why we've called this book Jesus on Mission. Just wherever Jesus goes, he's bringing life and healing and power and, and resurrection. He's just bringing so much wherever he goes. And so we're looking at this perspective from Jesus on mission. So uh, Jesus just got baptized. He faces Satan in the wilderness. He preaches his first message in Mark 1, chapter 1, verse 15. And now we're going to see the call to discipleship. And now we're going to see Jesus in Galilee. And he's starting to build his disciples and build his church ultimately. So let's read Mark chapter 1, verse 16. We're going to read and then we'll pray just so we can get a feel for what's going on. Mark chapter 1, verse 16. Remember this. Jesus just said... Some of those powerful words, words that Jews were waiting to hear for a couple thousand years. He said, the kingdom of God is here. And he preached the gospel. And this is something for them. They're longing for that day where someone would come on and say, the kingdom of God is here. But it was not the way they expected. It's not how they envisioned the kingdom of God coming. So look at verse 16. So as Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, we know him as Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed Jesus. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately Jesus called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they went after Jesus. Let's pray. We'll look at this more in depth. Father, again, we just thank you that we can slow down and just see the very first time you called people to follow you. And here we are today, a couple thousand years later, and we believe you still call men and women to follow you. So Jesus, let us respond to your voice today. Let us respond to what you're saying and doing. And we want to carry out, Jesus, what you started. We want to we fulfill what you've asked us to fulfill in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen. All right, you guys have to admit this. I know many of us, maybe not all of us, but many of us are Christians in this room, and we have to admit that we as Christians sometimes can be just a little strange, just a little different. Maybe for some of you, you're like, I know I didn't want to go to church because Christians were just weird to you. There's a little different to you. And some more than others, and some of you are like, speak for yourself, <laughs> right? But like, I get it that some of us are a little strange or a little different. And everyone, let's be honest, everyone has their weird idiosyncrasies. All of us are kind of, we all have our weird things about us, right? But there's some things in the church that are still strange to me. Like, there's some things we do, and I go, why do we do that? Like, why do we, why do we practice that? Why do we do that? Why do we have these certain Christian habits that we have? There's some things that are interesting. For example, Jesus gave us a lot of commandments. And what we do many times in the church is we memorize them. And that's not bad. Memorizing them is not bad. But I want you to think about Jesus is like, love your enemies. And you're like, got it, love your enemies. He's like, make disciples. You're like, yep, make disciples. And you're like, we got it. We memorize it. And we can like repeat it back. But he's like, okay, now, now do it, 
right? Like we can memorize these things. You know, it's like my son who's two and a half and he's, he's starting to communicate more. Let's just say he's a little bit further along. And I go to my son, I say, Micah, clean up your toys. He's like, got it. Comes back to me a couple hours later and goes, Dad, I memorized what you said. Micah, go clean up your toys. We're like, okay. He's like, Dad, I can say it in Greek too. It's pretty cool. We're like, oh gosh, no. Or, or, or he just comes back to me and goes, hey, Dad, actually, me and a group of my friends, we're, we're coming over tonight to, to the house, my toddler friends, and we're going to hold a study on what it means to clean up our room. Like, what it means to clean up, we're going to have a study on cleaning up our room. Isn't that great? You're like, no. See, the, the point is, some things are black and white, right? And why, don't we do this in the church? Like, sometimes Jesus gives us a really clear command. We're like, let's just talk about it for six hours, and then we'll forget about it. Like that's, but sometimes we do that. We memorize it. We internalize it in some ways, but it kind of stays there. So Jesus like, love your enemies. And we go, John, Luke chapter 6, love your enemies. Or make disciples, Matthew 28, I know the reference. And, like, we're, we think we've accomplished something because we've learned the text, but we're not accomplishing it. We're not fulfilling it. See, here's what's happening. Jesus said something really simple. He says, follow me. And I know that all of us have this little lawyer inside of us that likes to argue with everything. So we're here, follow me. We're like, well, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Let's define following. Like, and you know what? Maybe we should. Maybe in some ways it's good to follow Jesus. Like, we've got to define that a little bit. Maybe we should say, yes, that means complete and joyful obedience and submission. Like, maybe we should define what it means to follow Jesus. Or maybe we should follow Jesus right? Part of the gospel of Mark is just learning the way of Jesus. And so that's what we're trying to do, is we're trying to learn the way of Jesus. What is the way of Jesus, and who is he? And, and he brought a message, but he is also the message. And so how do we just follow Jesus? So we're going to look at this text in, in a few different lights, all right? Because we just read five verses, but there's so much here in these five verses. So here's what I want you to see. It begins with a call, or it begins with a call. Now, I have three thoughts and we're going to like dive into these more. But three points for us today, and we'll kind of break this down. First is this. Consider the call. Consider the call. Next, consider the community. Consider the other people that Jesus called. And then I'd say consider the cost. Consider the cost. So let's look at the first thing. Consider the call. Jesus simply sees these guys, and he says these words, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. It's not the best pickup line, right? But it, it worked. And, and here's what I want you to actually see and, and even like digest with me, this idea. This is the first time we see the birth of discipleship and really the birth of the church. Many times that we start in the book of Acts chapter 2, we go, in Acts 2, the church started, and you go, yes. But really, this is the first time we see people coming and following Jesus and following Jesus together. And really, the title of today is Following Jesus Together. Following Jesus Together. It's not just following Jesus, it's following Jesus together. And we're going we're gonna to look at how he called them in groups he called them together. But I want you to see this is so unique, what's happening. So a couple thoughts really quick. First, here's the first thought. Uh, I want you to consider the uniqueness of Galilee. All right, consider the uniqueness of Galilee. Jesus just comes on the scene, and he, he preaches a message everyone's been waiting for. Hey, the Messiah is here. The kingdom of God is here. And he goes, we're going to preach the gospel. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe in Jesus. And like he's actually initiating, he's ushering in the kingdom. He's saying it's here. But he goes to Galilee. And this is so counter to what everyone would think, right? This is so counter to what I would think. Like, Jesus should probably preach this message in Rome or in Jerusalem, but he goes to Galilee. And so when I say consider Galilee, a little picture of Galilee for you, because I don't know if we always can, I like to envision things. My wife and I got to go to Israel in 2010 um, with Calvary Chris Mason, with Chuck Smith. Awesome experience, right? It's a lake, just so you know. As a kid, I thought this was like actually like a sea, like the, I don't know, Black Sea, like just some massive, it's a lake. It's like 13 miles long by seven miles wide. All right, it's like, it's like it's a smaller lake even. 
But there was the Jordan River that would flow into it and flow out of it. There's a lot of fish there. Uh, this is like a fishing capital. I mean, this is kind of like the countryside. This is almost more of like where the, oh, the Galilean, like, hicks live there. Like, this wasn't like a great reputation, right? And th their, ma their main trade, obviously, was fishing, and it was even exporting fish. And that's mainly, that was their diet. That's what they lived off, of, lived off of. I mean, this was a part of just who they were. But Galilee was not influential. Galilee was not that crazy, that well-known. Josephus, this Roman Jewish historian, writes about Galilee and does tell us a little bit about it. We do know there, that there was actually this, something called the Galilean War in, in 68 AD, and the Romans took over si uh, 230 common like local boats, local fishing boats. So we know at one point there's 230 boats that were fishing this lake. Uh, we, we know there's some things about this, not, not a ton, but this is where Jesus begins his ministry, and this is where Jesus calls out his first disciples. And again, I find this so interesting. I would think, go to Rome where there's political influence. Or go to Athens where there's like cultural influence. Or go to Jerusalem where there's like spiritual influence. But he does everything the opposite. And we have to understand that this is the way Christianity works, right? I mean, Christianity is so different than how we would try to speak about it. Like, the Bible talks about the way up is down. The way to glory is, is death. Like, it's so counter everything. You think the birth of Christianity should start in, like, lights, camera, action, just crazy fame, but it starts in Galilee with some fishermen, with some, like, local hicks from their area. And, and I want you to not just consider the place, but consider, consider Jesus' unique call. Jesus was just baptized, just filled with the Spirit, preaches the kingdom of heaven, and he calls these fishermen. And I want you to see this and understand even the context. Jesus is a rabbi calling for disciples. Now, that's not normal. A rabbi would never go looking for disciples. A rabbi would never t tell or tell people, follow me. Understand this, that if you wanted to be discipled by a rabbi, by Gamaliel, by some like well-known rabbi that in their day, if you wanted to be trained and discipled by them, it would be kind of like today for college. There would, in a sense, be like a process, like an application and answering questions and going back and forth and him interviewing you and seeing if you really get it. There wasn't him, the rabbi never pursued until Jesus. Jesus is the first rabbi that pursues and he says something really unique. He says, follow me. And a rabbi is not going to say that. A rabbi is going to say, follow the Torah. Follow the teachings and the writings of the Bible. Follow maybe my interpretation of it. But he would never say, follow me. This is even unique, really, in the Bible. We don't see a lot of passages saying, follow like, God himself. A lot of times, like, follow the commandments, follow the statutes, follow the judgments. But Jesus is introducing saying, follow me. I'm the, I'm the Torah incarnate. I'm the word of God incarnate. I'm the law incarnate. I'm exactly what you need. Follow me. It's a really unique call. And notice this, that Jesus initiates it. And we have to start there, right? We have to start there with Christianity that Jesus initiates this. 1 John 4 talks about we love God. Why? Because he first loved us. This idea that God initiates, that God calls. And there's this unique thought of, for all of us that we've responded to the call of God. Hopefully all of us have responded to this call of God. And there's this thought, too, this, you really don't get to know Jesus until you follow him. Like, people can talk about Jesus, but if they don't follow him, they don't know Jesus. To get to know Jesus, you have to follow him. This is how we get to know Jesus. And, and I want you to see even how he does this. And I love that Jesus speaks their language. What does he say? He says, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And again, if you grew up in the church, maybe you've heard this term, and like, this is just kind of weird. Like, it just has like a for me, like a little cheesy classic song attached to it, like Fishers of Men. I don't know, there's always things attached to everything for some reason. But Fishers of Men, Jesus speaking a language, is a business language. For example, and I love this about Jesus, if he went up to bankers and he says, hey bankers, follow me and I will show you what true investment looks like. 
Or if you went to like great story writers, hey, follow me and I'll show you the greatest story ever told. Like Jesus is speaking their language, something that they can understand. Basically saying, hey, your work is going to be changed by my work. Everything about your work, everything about your vocation is going to change. That the, the skills and abilities you have of catching fish are going to be used to catching men now. And there's something about this that Jesus is rearranging their life, rearranging everything about their time, their money, everything about them is going to be used now to reach men and women for the gospel. See, when you and I have encountered Jesus, know this, that everything about our life will completely be rearranged. That the way we use our time, the way we use our money, the way we use influence, our abilities, our giftings, will all be used ultimately, so how can we get people into the kingdom? Like, everything changes at this moment. And here's just what I want you to consider myself, myself too, as I read this and I'm praying over this. But here's the thing I want you to, to consider is, yes, consider the call, but listen, don't ignore the call. Don't ignore the call of Jesus. You know, when I was 16 years old, and I really feel like I first heard Jesus calling me, it was like undeniable, right? Sitting there alone, listening to a powerful sermon on what Jesus Christ has done for me, and it, just, it, was, so, it was so clear, it's like, give it up. Give up everything you think will satisfy you. Give up all of your dreams for my dreams. Give up everything you think that will bring you peace and happy. Like, give it up, follow me. And it's almost as if, too, it's like he will do so much. I don't think any of the disciples left their fishing skill and was like, dang, I wish I stayed a fisherman. Like, I don't think any of them were like regretted the fact that they left it all. And, and I'm not saying that everyone's called to leave their vocation. By no means is everyone called to leave their vocation. We're, in fact, we should be using our vocation, our job, our workplace to bring the gospel into it, to be a light into it. Like, by no means is it leave, but it's saying, I'm leaving all of this. It's all secondary now to you, Jesus. I'm now leaving this for you, and I'm going to follow you. And if you've heard the call of God, I'd say, don't ignore the call. If you've heard Jesus saying, follow me, love me, repent, give this up, turn to me, don't ignore it. It will haunt you. Listen, ignoring the call of Jesus will haunt you. Will anyone else agree to that, right? Does the ignoring the call of God haunt you? Honestly, a few years ago when this was pressed upon our heart, like, to do this, and my, my wife and I were praying about church planting, whatever that means, and that was, like, a, a really Christian thing, and I'm like, I don't know, like, am I really called? To be honest, like, it's one of those things where, where the way I dream and, and wake up in the middle of the night, the way I read everything in life, is just like we couldn't run away from this call anymore. Let me be really clear. Jesus calls you and is still calling you. It's not like maybe he called you 20 years ago to follow him and he's not calling you to follow him today. It was just as hard to follow him at 16 and it was just as hard to follow him a couple of years ago to, to, to take this step. Like, the call of God is, is powerful, it's radical, but it's also so beautiful and it's so fulfilling. I feel like we were pushing it, like, away. And I started praying, God, take away this desire to start a church. Take, like, that was my prayer. Like, please take away this desire. I don't want to want to think about this anymore. And it's like, the more we tried to push it away, the stronger it got. And eventually, like, Jonah, like, I couldn't flee anymore. It's like, okay, I got to obey the call. Here's what I'm trying to say. Have you sensed the call of God in your life? Have you heard Jesus in your own way, in your own time, speaking those words of you, follow me. You, you say you follow me, but you're not following me here. There's still this area of your life you've not followed me in. H have you really tasted and seen that? Have you heard this call? Peter and Andrew heard this call of follow Jesus. James and John heard this call of follow Jesus. And I even want you to think about Peter. Peter was like a screw-up, right? Like Peter didn't do the things, didn't always, like it didn't work out well for Peter. But I love that Jesus literally told Peter, Peter, I'll make you a fisher of men. And we read the book of Acts, Peter just by the thousands leading people to Christ. And what Jesus said over Peter happened. And Andrew, though, 
his brother. We don't read great stories of Andrew, but Andrew led a little boy to Jesus to give him his five loaves and two fish. Andrew's the one who led Peter to Jesus. Here's, here's kind of my point. Some of you might be used by God powerfully to lead thousands to Christ, but you also might be an Andrew who leads that one person who leads the thousands to Christ. I mean, there's countless stories, whether it's Billy Graham's story or Charles Spurgeon's story, of like, they've, like people who led them to Christ. Only one, they've led one person their whole life, but happen to be a person who just changed the world in a sense for the gospel. So don't despise, like, I haven't led like 50 people, five people, one, like, lead that one. Find that one. We don't know what that one will do. And that's Peter, and that's Andrew, and, and they really did become fishers of men. And I love how this is worded. Look at verse 17. Follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. Literally, the, the way this is worded is, uh, I will make you to become fishers of men. So I want you to hear this. Because it's not like, follow me, and you will be a fisher of men today. It's not that. It's follow me, and you will become this one day. So again, this is a process. This doesn't happen overnight. Sometimes we can be really critical to new believers, like, well, why aren't they doing this yet? And why aren't they doing this yet? It's like, I will make you to become this. There is a process. And they were with Jesus for a few years before we start to actually see fruit in their ministry, and that was with Jesus. Know that there is a process of discipleship, amen? Can we say that it takes time, that we need to be patient? Those who are discipling others, let me encourage you, be patient. Those who are being discipled, let me encourage you, be patient. It takes time. I will make you to become fishers of men. And there's something so unique about this, which I, I love. The idea of fishing men and pulling them out of the water. You know, in, in Jewish terminology, th- they would understand this. Water to them was judgment in a lot of ways. I actually have a quote here from a guy a lot smart, smarter than me, and I had to bring it up because his name's Ben Witherington III, and that's a really smart name. So I'm like, okay, I got to quote Ben Witherington III. This is what he wrote. He said, in Semitic thought, waters particularly, the chaos waters, is seen as the enemy of God. In the background of Jesus' picture of, of fishers of men, it is necessary to see that the waters are the underworld, the place of sin and death. To fish out a man means to rescue him from the kingdom of darkness, out of the sphere which is hostile to, co- to God and remote from God. This idea of waters is saying, hey, rescue them from the judgment that's to come. Like, have this mindset that there's judgment to come and we're rescuing, we're pulling them out of this chaos, out of this self-absorption. We're pulling them out of this to now become fishers of men as well. Guys, we weren't just saved to stay saved, but we are saved to reach others so they can welcome them into the family, and that's what's happening here. Jesus called them and says, I didn't just call you, but I've called you to become something. And what would that be for us? How would he word that for us? He goes, follow me and I will make you. Like, what is that? And ultimately, it would be, yes, like fishers of men in, in some sort of form or fashion. And his, like he would word it for us and craft it in a way for us. But what would that be for you? I, I've made you to become. This is what you will become. And there's something so just profound that Jesus is speaking this over them and they became this. And so I want you to do this. The first thing is this, consider the call. Have you heard Jesus simply say those words to you yet? Follow me. Follow me. Follow me and I'm going to do something you can't do. Follow me and you'll be a part of something greater than yourself. Follow me. And have we left it all and followed him? So consider the call. And I want to do this. Number two is consider the community. All right, consider the community. Um, discipleship is at the very heart of God, but discipleship is at the very heart of community. All right, so meaning this, Jesus discipled men together. He discipled them together. They were never discipled alone. They were discipled together. Can we understand and agree that discipleship will happen in community? That is an important truth of Christianity. Discipleship will happen in community. This is the start of the church. He called them out in twos, this group of two, and this group of two, and discipleship will happen in community. And I want you to even see this. This kind of is, it goes against their natural bent. Don't assume because they're fishermen 
that Peter and Andrew and James and John don't assume that they're necessarily like, this is good. Do you notice that some of them, Peter and Andrew, were more of just fishermen. James and John had hired servants. Do you see that there's like a class system to this? Do you see that he called in poor fishermen and kind of wealthier fishermen? Do you think that there would have maybe, maybe been some sort of jealousy right away? Like, I know James and John. Like, don't you think there'd be some sort of division right away? Even when you look at the 12 disciples, P- Jesus calls Matthew a tax collector who works for Rome, and he calls Simon a zealot who killed Romans. And I want you to understand this, the birth of the church. The birth of the church was not people who had everything in common. They didn't right away. Like Acts 2, they shared all things in common eventually. But understand there was like, this is not people you would choose to do life with. Can we even look around and even know in our small groups that not always you'd go, I wouldn't choose to do life with them, but God has like brought that together. Like there's something really beautiful about that. They're like, they're really different than me. And Jesus is like, great, let's come together. Like there's something really unique about that. That it's not like I need to only be with a group of people that look and talk and sound just like me. That there should be this beautiful diversity within the body of Christ. That there should be, again, you have the left in a sense and the right coming together with Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. Like the church is supposed to be the left and the right coming together saying we're going to worship Jesus together. It's so much bigger than my political view, so much bigger than my personal stance on something that Jesus can bring people who were at complete odds and had murderous hate for each other together. Isn't that beautiful? That the gospel is so much bigger than my bent and my feelings and my things that Jesus goes, but you're going to come together and you're going to be discipled together. And it's going to be a painful and yet beautiful process. And I'm so thankful that there's some people in my life I never would have chosen to do life with on my own, but God has brought us together and now it's like their family. And that's what we need. We need God to bring different backgrounds, people groups, races, ethnicities, social class, money, like you need different everything to come together and say, we are being discipled together by Jesus. And that is such a beautiful thing that is very unique to the church. It's very unique to the church that we could have a million different backgrounds here with a million different views on everything, and yet we're saying we are all here by Jesus and for Jesus, and those things are secondary to following Jesus together. Amen? And that is the community that Jesus was building. And what a beautiful community to build. And what a difficult community that would have been to build. And imagine the frustrations, and we saw the arguments. I'm going to be the greatest. No, I'm going to be the greatest. Like we saw how it played out. But we also saw them give their lives for Jesus and for each other. It was just a beautiful thing that God was building, but it was tough. And guys, it takes a while. And I'll say this. Maybe this is like, this is our third week in the Gospel of Mark. And maybe you thought like by week three, like, I'm going to know everyone. They're going to know me. And it's like, maybe you're disillusioned or maybe you're hurt. And we got to understand that it just takes time. It ta- there's a process to this. That know this, eventually you and I will hit a wall. Eventually you'll say, that person hurt me, and you have a crossroad. Do you leave? Do you cut fellowship? Or do you press more into it? You know, I'm actually really thankful for those times that are really difficult, because now there's an opportunity for grace to be shown and poured out. See, we'd never experience grace if it was always like, like, you have to have, you have to experience the bad things, the negative things to say, okay, God, now there can be grace. Now you can move. Because we all will hit a wall at some point. There's a guy, and I know some, some of you know his story, maybe some of you don't. There's a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was this Lutheran pastor, right, in, in, during Nazi Germany days. And, and this guy just stood up for the gospel in such a powerful way. And he wrote a few different books, and if you know his story, he dies at the hands of, of the Nazis in Germany. He's, he's standing up for the gospel. He's, fight, he's just fighting for Jesus. It's uh, beautiful. He wrote this book called Life Together. All right, Life Together, what we're talking about. He wrote a book called Life Together, and listen to this quote uh, from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He writes this, Even when sin and misunderstanding burden the community, is not the sinning brother still a brother with whom I too stand under the word of Christ? Went from the screen. Will not his sin be a constant occasion for me to give thanks that both of us may live in the forgiving love of God in Jesus Christ? 
Thus, the very hour of disillusionment with my brother becomes incomparably helpful because it is so thoroughly teaches me that neither of us can ever live by our own words and deeds, but only by that one word and deed which really binds us together, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. There's so many things that will divide us and come between us, and yet we go, this is opportunity for grace. This is opportunity for God to work. You know, it's something that really frustrates me. When, when people do this, there's, there's this weird tension in scriptures. Jesus has called you individually. He's called you. That, that you will stand before God one day, and I'll stand before God one day, and I'll be by myself, and you'll be by yourself. We'll, we'll stand before God one day, right? There's, there's that reality to it, that he said to you, follow me. He said to you, not someone next to you. He said to you, follow me. Jesus says that to you individually. That is so true. But now there becomes this weird extreme where we say, this is my personal relationship with Jesus, and it's just me and Jesus, and I don't need anyone else. And that is just not the church, and that is not what we see in scriptures. It's almost like we try to personalize it so much, we forget that Jesus called men together, and he called it into discipleship together. And you miss this. You miss the point that this is something so much bigger than just you alone. That discipleship will always happen in community with others. It will happen in a place with other men and other women challenging you, saying things you don't agree with, having to learn how to tactfully show love and grace, and that's where growth comes in. So there should be some tension. There should be some pain. And that is good, and that is expected. We shouldn't run from that. I love how Peter writes it. Peter, who, who writes literally about community, it's in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Listen to how he says it. Peter says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Listen to this. Who were once not a people, but are now a, a, the people of God, who obtained, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. He goes, you were once far from God, you were once out of relationship with each other, but you've been brought together and you found mercy. And there's this idea, it's not just a personal thing, like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do my Christian walk alone. It, it is brought together in community, and that's where discipleship happens. So when I say consider the community, I'm saying cons consider the fact that there will be people that look different, talk different, act different, people you would not normally want to hang out with. And Jesus says, this is the church, and this is beautiful, and don't fight it, embrace it. You were once not a people, but now you're people. Now you're together. And this is something we should love and welcome and invite into. Something we should seek out. Something we should pursue together as well. And also, listen to this. Here's another thought. When I say consider the community, consider the men Jesus chose. Consider these Galilean hicks, in a sense, who had no education, who were just fishermen, who had, a, who had a craft, who had a skill. Consider who he called. Consider the men that Jesus used to change the world and turn the world upside down, as it says in Acts. Consider those men. It's, again, Jesus didn't choose the most brilliant he didn't choose those who had the in with Rome. He didn't choose those influencers. He goes, let me have the ordinary. You know, I, I've had different leaders share this with me. And I, it's so true and I love it. He's like sh telling me, going, you will never just find leaders and stumble upon leaders. You will only make leaders. And that has been something I've really tried to understand is I can't just like, so I'm like, oh, finally, I've been waiting for the CEO of this company to help. Like, it's just not going to happen. We're going to have to find people and build them and pour into them and pour into them and pour into them. Jesus used ordinary men to do extraordinary things. He used common men to do very uncommon things. Isn't that, isn't that how our God works? Is this not the gospel? Look at this verse. Can we write this verse down? Because I want, I want you to understand, and I hope you'd rather boast in your ordinariness, right? Like, I want you to boast in the fact that your ordinary verse is like, I mean, I'm not me. They might be ordinary. Like, no. Look at 1 Corinthians 1. It says, for you see your calling, I'm going to read it here because I just, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. 
And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. Amen? It is an insult to God when you say God cannot use me. That is such an insult. That's who God uses. God uses the weak so he can get the glory. God uses the weak so he can show his strength. That's who God's looking for. Not the most charismatic, not the most gifted, not the most talented. God's like, I'm just looking for those who are available. And I love that saying, the greatest ability is, is, is availability. Like, it's so true. God is just saying, I'm looking, my eyes are roaming the earth on whom I can sh- show myself strong on behalf of. I'm looking for people who are just open and willing to, re- to be ready to be used. I'm looking for fishermen. I'm looking for the uncommon. I'm looking for the low things, the base things to confound the wise, to show the, the glory and the strength is not in the person, but it's in the gospel. The glory is not in their giftings, it's in what I have done for them on their behalf. That's where the power lies. That we're not coming with wisdom of words, but in demonstration and power of the Spirit of God. God's like, I want the glory. I deserve the glory. If I don't get the glory, you're stealing, because all glory is mine. And that is ultimately the idea, that he can get the glory. I, I love a verse that I so love, and it's a simple verse. It's James 5.17, right? You guys know, it just simply says this, Elijah was a man like us. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Isn't that great? Because you read about Elijah. This guy was caught up in a chariot of fire into heaven, right? Like, this guy took his cloak and, like, touched the water and it separates. Like, this guy's, when he's dead, his bones brought someone back to life, right? Elijah's like, you go, come on. But Elijah, like, caught on fire from heaven after he put water on the sacrifice. Like, he was showing off. Like, Elijah, and, and James reminds us, no, he was a man like us. There, there's no glory to Elijah. It's glory to God who empowered and gave Elijah what he had. I mean, I mean at the end of the day, we can realize, and this, this was used in the context of prayer. Like at the end of the day, we are common people like Elijah called to do uncommon things. We, we are base people tr- called to do things that we can't do apart from the Holy Spirit of God. Like we're going to need him. We're going to need prayer. We're going to need to seek and fast and pray and say, God, this is way bigger than us. God, we can never put this together. See, my, my hope for this is consider the community. Consider how God used these men and these women. One's caught out of adultery. Ones who are so focused on work, he, co- he called people out of just themselves to be part of something so much greater. And I love that about the church. I love that there is, that you can't look around and be like, oh, that's why it's successful. You're almost like, why is that successful? Like, it makes no sense. You're like, yes, it's God. It's the gospel. It's the power of God. Consider that community. You know, um, there's a guy named Russell Conwell, or Conwell, uh, in the, like, the late 1890s, he started Temple University in Philadelphia. So he was a Baptist preacher, a Baptist pastor, and if you guys have heard of Temple University, I don't know, I, I only know because I watch basketball, and I like Temple sometimes, um, but he started Temple University, and, and Temple uh, University is now like, a, it's a big school, it's an international school, but this guy started it, a pastor started this school, and he wanted to raise money for it, and there's, this is a true story, but he'd go around, he raised seven million dollars, like in the 1890s, that's, that's incredible, I can't imagine what that is today, but he raised seven million dollars trying to build this university, and he, it says he, he gave over 6,000 speeches, and the same speech, but over 6,000 speeches to raise awareness and money, and in all of these speeches, he shared the same story, I think it's called uh, uh, Acres of Diamonds, and he shared this story about a man who lived in Africa, a true story, uh, who lived in Africa, he's a farmer in his land, he always farmed until the land, but he started hearing about, out, he's hearing about outside people come in who started mining for diamonds, and really he lived there, he owned this land, but he heard about all these people making tons of money off diamonds, and so eventually he sold his land, and he used that money to try to find diamonds, and he pursued and pursued, and he looked all the, he searched elsewhere, but he kept on looking and looking and looking, eventually he lost his money, he was out of everything, and so he took his own life. 
again, this is a true story, but the man who bought his field years later, there's a little creek that ran through his field. He finds a very unique diamond in that river. It's a very expensive diamond, a very large diamond. And then he starts to dig some more, and eventually finds these hundreds of thousands of diamonds on this guy's land. And this guy that gave it all up because he thought it was nothing, if he only took some time to explore, if he only took some time to take inventory on his own land, he would have realized he was sitting on a priceless piece of property. And the point is true for us, that we might look at us and go, who am I? No gifting. Who am I? There's nothing here. There's other people. There's other things out there. And we search and we search. And God is like, I've placed this gift in you. I've placed, for, as 1 Corinthians 4 talks about, this treasure in earthen vessels. That there is, there's, there is this treasure in you that is not, it's not you, it's, it's me in you, but mine it out. Spend time, explore it. Search it out. Don't just throw it away. Don't just say, I, I'm nothing, it's worth nothing, I've made too many mistakes, I've done too many things. God's like, search it out, spend some time. I love how God uses uncommon people to do very, uh, or common people do very uncommon things, amen? That is our God. Consider the community. And lastly is this, consider the cost. Consider the cost. If you look at verse 17, or verse 18, it says, they immediately left their nets and followed Jesus. Verse 20, and immediately Jesus called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. Immediately, there was obedience. Immediately, they responded. But we have to understand, consider the cost. Consider the cost. Now, for us, this might not be a big deal, but understand, these guys, James and John specifically, left their dad and left their dad's business. Now, in the Eastern culture, family's a bigger deal than it is, sadly, in our culture. I wish it was a bigger deal for our culture. But for them, it would have been a lot, very hard to leave their father. That would have been really hard. For us, it was like, leave our father. That's easy. Like, we do that all the time as, like, Westerners, as Americans. Like, yeah. For us, the difficulty is leaving our job. For us, the difficulty is leaving maybe a relationship. And yet, these guys basically did it all. Now, we know that eventually they went back to fishing here and there. But the, the point is, it's really clear, is they left it, like, immediately, like, it's worth it. But you've got to consider the cost. You've got to consider what you're leaving. You've got to consider everything that it entails. I mean, there really is a lot to consider if you think about it. Jesus says if, if a man's not willing to leave his father and mother and, and yes, even hate his own life, he, he's not worthy of being my disciple. Consider the cost. Consider what it means to say no to this but yes to Jesus. And there will be a lot of things we'll say no to. And you do have to count the cost. And right, that's Luke 14. Jesus says, no man goes in the battle. And he goes, well, I have 10,000, they have 20,000, but I still think we, he goes, no, you're going to consider and you're going to count the cost. Can our 10,000 beat their 20,000? You always got to consider and factor it. So some people, it's like, follow Jesus. Some people respond immediately great. But if you need to consider, consider what you're leaving, and you're, you're leaving a lot. But you are gaining so much more. In the long run, what you're gaining with Jesus is so much more. I don't think, like I said, I don't think any of them were ever regretting that they left all and followed Jesus. You don't see that. You don't see them be like, well, I could have made a few bucks, like, with some fish. Like, you don't see that. It was so worth it to them. And, and here's what I want us to see when I say consider the cost. Jesus doesn't just want to be another thing attached to your life. He wants to be the everything. Like Jesus is not something like, well, I'll experience Jesus two hours a week and I'm good, right? Like that is just not the case. You just don't see that anywhere. Jesus is not another thing we add on to our life. He's the only thing. He's the everything, amen? He's the center of everything. The point now is everything in their life was rearranged around the person of Jesus. We're going to follow Jesus for a few years, and then we're going to follow Jesus for many more years after that, giving up our life for that truth, giving up our life for this cause, because we saw the death and resurrection of Jesus, and I will give my life for the fact that Jesus rose again, because I know that when I die, I will be with him. Like, they believed this to their core. They centered their life around this. And again, you must consider the cost, because it's, it's foolish, as Luke 14 talks about, it's foolish to just follow him without considering, so consider the cost, but consider the reward. And consider what you gain. That what could man give in exchange for his soul? 
that you could gain everything, but if you're to lose your soul, what's the point of that? That you could have everything, have every dream, desire, passion, everything you've ever wanted fulfilled, and you, if you lose yourself at the end of the day, what's the point of that? You see, we got to consider the cost. And the, the, I would say consider the cost on the other side. The cost of staying with fishing. The cost of staying with pursuing what you think is best for your life. Consider that cost. Consider what you'd be missing out on in that sense. Don't just consider, like, it does cost a lot to follow Jesus, but consider what it would cost just to stay with what you're doing. Consider that outcome. Consider that eternity. So when I say consider the cost, consider it in many ways. Again, Jesus does not want to be some condition in our life. Like, I want Jesus if he does this. Because Jesus knows if that if, that that will be your passion, that will be your God. He just want Jesus. Jesus said what? Follow me. Follow me. It's not follow Jesus so that I can get. Or follow Jesus so that this happens good in my life. Because if I follow Jesus, I came to church on Super Bowl Sunday, I, I deserve something. Right? Like, there's some sort of thought we have in our mind. Like, I will follow Jesus in order to get something. In reality, just simply follow me for me. Follow me for me. Love me. Parents who have kids, don't you just want your kids to want you, right? Like not stuff from you. Like you guys get that. I get that now. Now I call my mom and dad. Like, I'm so sorry. I never just wanted you and I wanted stuff from you, right? Like I get that. Because it's, it's, it's kind of this idea of like I just want my son to go like he just wants to give me a hug, not because he wants a, a snack later and gives me a kiss because I give him candy. But that's what he does. But it's like just want me. And I, I just think that is the heart of God. It's just like just follow me. Follow me for me. Love me for me. And guess what? I love how he speaks this vision. I will make you become. This is what you will be. Jesus didn't see them for who they were. He saw them for what they could be. And that is how God looks at us. It's not, hey, this is what you are. I see, I see what you are. I see what you are, fishermen. I see what you are. I see what you've done. But I see what you can become. You can become a fisher of men. This will be a part of your story. That not just you were rescued, but you'll help now rescue. Not just you're redeemed, but you're now help redeem. And this is what Jesus is speaking over them. And I'd say consider that. Consider the cost. Listen, if, if Jesus is speaking to you, I would say respond. If you're sitting here and you're going, Jesus is saying, give this up. Jesus is saying, repent. I would say respond, follow him. I would say do it immediately. I would say respond like they did. It's so worth it. But consider that cost. Know that Jesus' call is m- so much greater than, than my call or what I could dream up for my life. Amen? Jesus' call in your life is so much greater than what you could dream up for your life. Just consider, consider what it is. And I love the fact that a lot of these guys, all of them but John, it, it, took, it took their life eventually. All these guys gave their life for Jesus. But again, what would a man give in exchange for his soul? But what do these guys gain in the long run? Look at the, the people today, us falling because of these guys' faithfulness. What will they experience in heaven? Like I just, I, it's exciting to think, in a sense, how God just used some uncommon people to do some crazy things, and God still does that today. And I'd say, listen, if you've heard the voice of Jesus, respond. Don't fight it anymore. It will drive you mad. If you hear Jesus saying, follow me, I love you. Follow me. My plan for you is way better than follow him. Leave your nets, whatever that is. Stop fixing your nets, whatever that means. You just follow him. You leave it all. He is so worth it, amen? And here's the thing, follow Jesus together. These two guys, these two guys coming together is following Jesus together. We cannot just follow Jesus in an isolated way. That is so dangerous. We are called to do this together. And so here's for us what we do, and we've talked about this as a church. What I love about this topic today is it focuses on two of our values as a church, community, and mission. This idea of, like, we're going to do this together, and we're going to do this with four other people. I can go out. And so here's, like, f- become fishers of men, like, that idea of, like, community and mission. So here's what I'm, oh, I'm sharing with you. We, we only have, like, we have six small groups, and we want those small groups filled, and we want more. But here's what we're asking. We're asking that people who would consider this their home church, that you'd be part of that, that you'd be part of discipleship together. 
Maybe God's calling you to help lead that in, in some ways, and we can talk after, but we, we want to be called into discipleship together. So just so you guys are aware, I have a group on Monday nights. My wife has a group on Monday nights. We have um, Angel and Mike Denker who do a couples group for those dating, engaged, or married. And, and they actually wrote, a, they wrote the book on marriage. They wrote a book called Same Team on marriage. Like this is their heartbeat. So if you're a couple, we have a group for you. Uh, we have a group that meets on Tuesday nights. We have two groups that meet on Tuesday nights, one girl group, one guy group. We have another guy group on, on Wednesday night. We have six groups. We want you to be part of it. We would love for this to be like, let's take this message that we've heard and let's do our best to now apply it. Rather, like we said, like, hey, Dad, look, I'm going to have a Bible study and clean up my room. We're going to try to, yes, get into that, but then go and do mission. I know my wife's group, they're going to go do a, an outreach for homeless women on, like near Valentine's Day and bless them and give them some stuff. on that. That's wonderful. And there's so many little things that we want to go together and do this together. Because we've been rescued, we have to help rescue. Amen? And so I'm going to ask this. We're going to end a little early. We're not going to have worship. We're just gonna, I'm going to pray, close at this time. We're going to have some laptops and computers in the back if you'd like to sign up and be a part of a group. Uh, our leaders will be back there. If you want to just meet the leaders, who are they? What are they like? You can meet our leaders, but we'd love to invite you into this. We'd love for this to be a part of our DNA, not just something we do, but just a part of our DNA. It's like we are going to do life together. We are going to multiply in small groups. And we're going to divide and conquer and reach our community. Amen? Uh, also, because I don't want to give this announcement, one more announcement, because I'd rather talk about it and preach them than kind of say, here's an announcement. Uh, for all the ladies in this room, not this Friday, next Friday, my wife and some girls are throwing together something called a, a Galentine's party. Um, right? It's so great. It's a great name. Uh, so it's the Friday after um, Valentine's Day. Uh, men, we are not going to do a Palentine's this year, but maybe next year. <laughs> Just so you know, we might have a little Palentine's. So you're, some of you are like, oh, my blood's boiling. Uh, but I, don't, I can't even say that. Macrame? It's like, I think it's a dance. I'm just kidding. Um, no, so they're, they're going to like build plant pots. I don't know. Uh, you can see, if you are a woman in this room, see any woman leader with uh, one of those necklace things on, and just, they have information. I'm doing a really good job explaining this. Um, it's going to be great. So not this Friday, next Friday, Galentine's. It's another way for us just to build community, have some fun. Uh, we'd love for you to, whether you're single or married, this is for any woman who attends. We'd love for you to go. And guys, I'm sorry, we have nothing for you. Maybe we'll do Palentine's, like I said, next year. Um, but let me just pray for us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much, so much that you've called us into community with yourself and with others. We thank you so much, Father, that you're still speaking these words to us, saying, follow me. Jesus, I just ask that people who are here that right now would respond, that we would leave it all and follow you, and that, Jesus, we would do it together. So, God, be with everyone in this room. Let us just continue to fight for this. When, it's, when we're tired, when the group times are not convenient, when the, the people are different, let us fight for this, God, because this is, this is the church. So we thank you. We ask that you just lead us in our leader time now, and, uh, God, that you would just get all glory. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen.